At Planet Fitness, you can get down with your judgment-free self. Join for only $1 down, $10 a month, no commitment. Now through January 15th, Planet Fitness has cardio, weights, and locker rooms that sparkle like a glass of New Year's champagne. Only $1 down, $10 a month, no commitment. Now through January 15th, join in-club or online at PlanetFitness.com. Planet Fitness, the judgment-free zone. Offer expires January 15th. Stop by any of our 15 area locations. Annual membership fee applies. Participating locations only. See club for details. Welcome to the History of the Cold War podcast, episode 31, The French-Indochina War, part 2, 1951 to 1954. I'm your host, Jeff Hogue. As always, make sure you check out our website for the map that goes along with this episode and its corresponding photos. And as always, forgive me for any mispronunciations. So in our last segment, the French garrison at Kaibang was wiped out as they attempted to retreat. Panic soon swept through the French community in Hanoi, and plans were drawn up to evacuate the city. In Paris, newspapers' headlines announced the fall of Hanoi was imminent. Meanwhile, events in Korea were also shaping events in Indochina. China had entered the war in Korea that November, pushing United Nations forces back down the peninsula, and for the U.S. government, the Cold War stakes had been risen in the rest of Asia. China had to be contained. Therefore, the administration relaxed its criticism of the French colonial policy as it was felt that France's presence was the only thing standing in the way of the spread of communism throughout the region. The U.S. had already delivered a shipment of Hellcat fighters to the French in Indochina, but this was quickly followed in November by a shipment of Bearcat fighters and 41 B-26 bombers as well as transport aircraft. This shipment of planes was critical to the French efforts in Vietnam. From 1946 to 1950, the French Air Force in Vietnam was composed of 60 old Spitfires that were literally rotting away because of the tropical climate. In addition to old C-47s and German Ju-52s, which doubled as transports and bombers. With these new American aircraft, the tonnage of French bombs dropped steadily rose from 934 tons in 1949 to 12,800 tons by the end of the war in 1954. The French Navy also participated in the air war, with two aircraft carriers typically stationed in the Gulf of Tonkin, although one of them, the Bella Woods, was not French but on loan from the United States, which added eight additional squadrons of American-supplied Corsairs, Hellcats, and Bearcats. In addition, the French Navy supplied old Catalina flying boats, which provided coastal surveillance. By the end of the war, France had roughly 400 planes in Vietnam. The Viet Minh, in contrast, never had an air force during the war, but developed a proficiency in anti-aircraft battery fire and destroyed a number of French aircraft on the ground through commando raids. Weather also affected the tempo of air operations for the French, especially in the monsoon season. The French, unlike the British in Malaya or the Americans later in Vietnam, never used significant numbers of helicopters. That December, a new French commander was appointed in Indochina, Jean Dilaté, Paris felt that they needed someone to take charge of the situation from both the military and civilian perspective. Like Sir Templer later in Malaya, Dilatier would be both the head of the army and high commissioner of the colony, having control of both the military and the civilian bureaucracy. He was one of NATO's highest-ranking generals. 
The Latte had served with gallantry in the First World War, being wounded on five occasions. Between the wars, he was deployed to Morocco, where he spent time suppressing nationalist movements. During World War II, he was jailed by the Vichy regime for refusing to surrender to the Germans. He subsequently escaped and joined the Free French Forces. Latier was similar to General MacArthur, who he even sort of looked like. He was vain, and he had a flair for the dramatic, egocentric, and moody. He dressed meticulously and had his uniforms tailored. He was also very sensitive to the subject of honor, be it his own or that of France. His acceptance of the post came as a surprise to many. It was a huge career gamble, and in many ways a step down. But Diatier was a gambling man, and he hated the communists. He saw the battle in Indochina not as a traditional colonial war, but as a stand against global communism. When he arrived in Indochina, he quickly canceled plans to evacuate Hanoi and announced that his wife would be joining him there. He vowed that Tonkin would be held, rejecting the advice of some French officers to retreat to southern Vietnam. He mobilized as many colonial French citizens as he could as he could into garrisons for guard duty to free up uh, more French troops for combat duty. He flew over the Red Delta in his small spotter plane, uh, showing little regard for his personal safety as his plane was shot at on numerous occasions. Everywhere he went, he rooted out incompetent and lazy officers and officials. He reorganized the expeditionary force and the system of defenses around the Red River Delta. He broke his troops into two types static units which would hold locations, and mobile strike groups. These mobile strike groups were supposed to act as offensive units but ended up operating more or less as firemen. They would move to support bases and units that came under attack. Specific air units were also assigned to each mobile group. In the Delta, a series of self-contained and mutually supporting concrete blockhouses were also created, which radiated around Hanoi and Haiphong. They each were manned by 5 to 10 men. This chain of fortified positions built in groups of five or six supported each other through interlocking fields of fire, making it difficult for the enemy to advance against these positions. By the end of 1951, more than a thousand of these posts had been created. However, Diatier faced the challenge of finding enough men to man these defenses. First, he requested and received more North African and French foreign legionnaires for his mobile units. He also built up the Vietnamese Army, or the VNA, from 11 to 25 battalions, in addition to four armored squadrons and eight artillery batteries. This force would be tasked with holding positions. For equipment, Dilatier turned to the Americans, who supplied more fighters, bombers, and 105mm howitzer rounds. He also requested and received napalm from the United States. For those of you who might not be aware, napalm is a jelly-liquid bomb first used in World War II that burns at extremely hot temperatures and sticks to the bodies of its victims, literally roasting them alive. As we will come to see, napalm played an important and notorious role in the Cold War, especially in Vietnam. Jap viewed Dilatier's appointment as a chance to defeat one of France's greatest generals. Confident from his victory at Cao Bang, he felt a victory against Dilatier would break French morale and potentially win the war. Jap thus set his sights on the liberation of the Red River Delta and Hanoi. Men forces moved into position north of Hanoi with some 65 infantry battalions supported by 12 artillery and 8 engineer battalions. Throughout the Delta, communist posters appeared announcing that Ho Chi Minh would be in Hanoi for the Tet, or the Chinese Lunar New Year. The first target was a town of Vinh Yen, some 30 miles northwest of Hanoi, and part of Diatye's chain of forts that surrounded the Delta. 
On January the 13th, two regiments attacked a small post held by some 50 Senegalese and Vietnamese who fought to the last man. The mobile group tried to come to the rescue but was beaten back by the Viet Minh and had to retreat to the hills. Pilatiere arrived to take personal command of the situation. He ordered the mobilization of all available troops in South Vietnam to be sent north. He then ordered a mobile group to take the heights around Vinh Nhen. The North African troops took the hills and dug in, but next morning the Viet Minh pushed them back, and hand-to-hand combat ensued with Tommy guns and grenades. Casualties were high on both sides. Yatye ordered all available aircraft, fighter bo- fighters, bombers, and transport planes capable of dropping napalm canisters to attack. Napalm rained down on the Viet Minh relentlessly, literally roasting men alive. After the battle, Jap had lost 6,000 dead and 8,000 wounded. Americans supplied planes, napalm, and 105mm artillery shells have been critical in the French victory, and it's doubtful France would have won the battle without these arms. Jap, however, saw the battle as a setback and not a defeat. He still felt the French were vulnerable, and another Viet Minh victory could win the war. Twice more that spring, Jap tried to break into the Delta. Both times he failed. In late March, he sent 21 battalions against the French garrison around Kai, some 20 miles northwest of Haiphong. The French were outnumbered 3 to 1, but they held off the Vietnamese, again with napalm and 105mm howitzers. In late May, he tried again, attacking the Day River. The region contained valuable farms and was heavily Catholic and resistant to Viet Minh infiltration. The attack began on May the 29th and caught the French by surprise. The Atye organized eight motorized brigades and counterattacked. Heavy fighting ensued, and for days the outcome was in doubt. Some positions changed hands several times, but the Catholic militia fought tenaciously, and French riverine forces cut Jap's supply lines. In the following days, Jap ordered a general withdrawal, leaving some 9,000 dead and 1,000 captured. Jap had been clearly bested by Diatye and shown to be an amateur. Jap had sent his men to attack in the open during the day against fortified positions against an enemy with air superiority and greater firepower and paid a heavy price. Jap's defeats and heavy losses had led to desertions amongst the Viet Minh, and Jap's leadership was called into question. Even Ho Chi Minh expressed concerns with Jap in private over the heavy losses. Ultimately, he didn't lose his position, but his authority was undermined, and he resolved to avoid large set-piece battles again with the French. Nevertheless, the Atye, despite winning these victories, lacked the forces to go on the offensive, nor did these victories enhance the French reputation. He explained to the Vietnamese that his mission was to preserve their freedom and not reestablish imperial authority. The Vietnamese, however, were skeptical. France had shown no signs of granting Vietnam its independence. The French had ceded control of the treasury and customs to Bodai uh, government, but the High Commissioner's Office had the final say on key issues and conducted the war effort. Therefore, many Vietnamese took a wait-and-see position, including Baodai himself, who spent much of his time on the French Riviera playing tennis. Nevertheless, Diatier's prestige rose steadily through 1951, and French journalists said his victory at Vignen was akin to the miracle on the Marne. Many were convinced that without his leadership, Hanoi and possibly all of Indochina would have fallen to communism. In his moment of glory, though, Dilatier suffered a personal tragedy. His son Bernard was killed in the fighting around Day River. Dilatier was shattered and flew back to France with the body of his son. Dilatier wasn't the only general to lose a son in Vietnam. 
Leclerc's son died in a Viet Minh POW camp, and General Navarro's son would die at Dien Bien Phu. Following his, vic- his return to Vietnam, he started to suffer from a mental breakdown. He became bitter and extremely critical. He called the Vietnamese fence-sitters and complained that the French were sacrificing their lives for Vietnamese independence, and in return the Vietnamese were offering very little help. He failed to note, however, that most of those who had died for the French were not French nationals but Arabs, Africans, and Legionnaires. If anything, he declared the Vietnamese were betraying the French by working with the Viet Minh. Bao Dai's government was unpopular, and the Vietnamese middle class were refusing to join the army. Not a single Vietnamese doctor or medical student could be induced to join. He blamed the Catholic bishop at uh, Fat Diem for the death of his son. He criticized the American press for questioning France's commitment to granting Vietnam independence, and it angered him that the Truman administration tried to provide aid directly to the Bo Dai government and not through the French. He banned any mention of U.S. economic aid in French-language papers in Vietnam and became furious that so many Vietnamese were learning English through the U.S. State Department when so few spoke good French. Young Saigonese went to American movies, listened to American music, and dressed like Americans. Wealthy Vietnamese, however, still preferred French culture and still used French as their second or first language. More and more Americans could be seen moving through the streets of Saigon with their large sedans, hitting the bars and restaurants, sporting crewcuts and Hawaiian shirts that they left untucked. The Americans made no pretense for blending in. Many French derogatorily called the Americans crazy. They felt that the Americans were muscling in their way into Vietnam and spreading their wild ideas about freedom and independence among the local people who they didn't really understand in a region they knew very little about. Fatdie accused the Americans of undermining his authority in an attempt to replace France and Indochina. He accused his second-in-command, Raoul Salan, a seasoned officer, of being a closet communist, a gambler, and an opium addict. Salon did admit to taking opium to relieve his stress, but he denied the other charges. In all his sorrow and heated debate, the general's health started to decline. However, he was convinced that for France to triumph in Vietnam, they would need more American aid. Therefore, he traveled to Washington to convince the Americans of the importance of Vietnam in the global struggle against communism. Viet Ye, in his two-week visit, ex- uh, explained to the Americans that Vietnam and Korea were part of the same struggle against global communism. France had taken up the burden alone in Vietnam, and American aid was essential, but more was needed if France was to prevail. Villatier needed more weapons, and he needed more of them faster. For the most part, the trip went well. Truman and most Americans agreed that the struggle in Korea and Vietnam were one and the same, and that the U.S. would provide more aid, although there was the caveat that Korea was the first priority for the United States. In the end, the United States would pay more for the war in Korea than the war in Vietnam, despite it only lasting three years in contrast to the four years of direct American support for the French in Vietnam. In private, though, many American officials questioned if it was the same war and pressed the general for more proof that France was sincerely committed to granting Vietnam independence. They also pushed the general to make greater efforts at building up the VNA. Yatye, the charismatic, immaculately dressed general that spoke near-fluent English, made a great impression on the American public. He warned that if he lost Vietnam, all of Southeast Asia would fall to communism, followed by India and Africa. President, he met with the Joint Chiefs of Staff, the Pentagon, the military academies, Fort Benning, and Langley. In Congress, the press, and amongst the general public, the war in Vietnam became much more known to the American people. 
Other Americans still opposed the war. JFK saw the conflict as a French colonial war and thought the United States was risking its reputation by backing the French. Kennedy had traveled to Vietnam, and he believed that Bo- the Bo Dai government was weak and lacked popular support, and many in Congress, the State Department, and the CIA agreed with him. In the months following uh, Dia's visit to, to the United States, the Americans delivered 130,000 tons of equipment, including 53 million rounds of ammunition, 8,000 general-purpose vehicles, 650 combat vehicles, 200 aircraft, 14,000 small arms, and 3,500 radios. Despite the uptick in American supplies, though, it was difficult to get these supplies from ports to units in the field. Armed convoys were forced to move slowly on poor roads, often through bad weather, and were subject to frequent attacks. Diate, however, uh, hoped to put this equipment to good use, but when he returned to Saigon, he was diagnosed with, with the final stages of cancer, and he would die shortly thereafter. His passing cast a, a pale over all of France, and public mourning was declared for three days. And for two days, his body lay in state at the Invalides. Yilatier was replaced by his subordinate, Raoul Salon. Salon loved Indo-Chinese history and collected a number of artifacts, was polite and dressed elegantly, and had a, fond, a fondness for opium. Wealth of personal and military experience uh, with Indochina. He had been born, actually, in southern Vietnam in 1899 and spent much of the 1920s and 1930s as a captain in North Vietnam and remote parts of Laos. He spoke Laotian and had a common-law Laotian wife. Later, he served as the Director of Intelligence Service for the Ministry of Colonies. In World War II, he served as a division commander in Europe and returned to Vietnam in October 1945. Major military engagements had ended as Jap switched tactics back to terrorism and guerrilla warfare. Viet Minh units remained active in Central and South Vietnam. At a popular resort for the French officers and their families, a group of Viet Minh soldiers dressed in French uniforms rushed into the resort with Sten guns, shooting into the crowds, killing 20, including six children, and wounding another 23. Hand grenades became a popular tool to Viet Minh. They were thrown from bicycles or rolled down theater aisles. In South Vietnam, a young Viet Minh suicide bomber killed himself and the commander of French forces in South Vietnam by grabbing him after pulling the pin on a grenade. Booby traps and landmines also killed and wounded their fair share of French and colonial troops, including three colonels. Take a quick break here and thank some of our contributors to the show. JB, Dylan Harrington, and Dom Thorrington. Thank you for your contributions, and I apologize if I mispronounced anyone's name. I know from the the comments you guys uh, love the content and some of the lesser-known aspects of the Cold War that we cover, and we got some great new episodes coming up uh, for you guys. We have a biographical episode looking at Ho Chi Minh and General Jap, uh, an episode looking at Stalin's uh, empire or the Soviet empire, uh, which will be a closer examination of the Soviet Union and events in Eastern Europe at this time, and an episode – about the early Cold War in the Middle East, which I know a lot of people requested, and we're going to examine the United Nations as well in the early Cold War. Your continued contributions make this show possible, so if you want to support this type of content, consider becoming one of our monthly contributors through Patreon at the $5 level level, or whatever amount you feel is appropriate. Our website is www.historythecoldwarpodcast.com, one word. Now back to the show. Tensions remained high. Regional troops harassed the French. The French responded by launching sweeps of the Delta. 
when pro-Viet Minh villages were discovered, the civilians were expelled and the villages were burnt to the ground. This caused the Viet Minh food situation to grow worse, but eventually it alienated the Vietnamese population and created a large pool of recruits for the Viet Minh. Moreover, because of the lack of troops, once they cleared an area of the enemy, they would have to leave, which allowed the Viet Minh to return. There was no civil service to remain on the scene to try and work with the peasants. In stark contrast to the British in Malaya and Kenya, who built fortified villages and attempted to control the population. For most of early 1952, Jap saved his resources. Supplies from China had increased over the previous year and included 40,000 rifles, 4,000 submachine guns, 450 mortars, 120 recoilless guns, 50 anti-aircraft guns, 35 field guns, along with millions of rounds of ammunition and thousands of grenades. French, meanwhile, tried to engage Jap in another set-piece battle. They decided to seize a river and road junction north of Hanoi in a place called Hao Ben. If they took this town, they believed they would be able to cut the Viet Minh supply lines from South Vietnam and from China, drawing the Viet Minh into battle. At dawn on November the 14th, three French paratrooper battalions descended onto the town and quickly took it. Simultaneously, to the south, 22 infantry battalions supported by artillery and two armored units moved north from Hanoi. By the next day, the French had achieved all of their objectives with very few losses. Jap had sensed a trap and didn't see any advantage in fighting the French, so he withdrew his forces to the surrounding mountains. By 1952, Washington was paying for about 40% of the war in Indochina, and yet its influence on the ground, and even with the French, was still limited, politically speaking. The French, on the other hand, couldn't meet their NATO obligations and pay for their share of the war in Vietnam, with, even with American assistance. The war in Indochina would likely cost a billion dollars in 1953. In the National Assembly, a cross-section of delegates questioned France's continued commitment to the war in Vietnam. Views which a year, a year ago would have been labeled as defeatist or unpatriotic were now openly expressed, and not just by the French left. Many delegates asked how France could afford a war that cost one-sixth of the entire budget. The press, too, had turned against the war. Le Monde and Le Frigo, uh, France's leading papers, had turned against the war. They argued that China would never allow the Viet Minh to be defeated, making military victory there impossible. However, there were still diehards who still sought a military victory, like Defense Minister George Bedalt. Nevertheless, the assembly approved a wide, by a wide margin 326 billion francs for the land war in Vietnam. This sum, however, did not cover the Navy or Air Force as in previous years and had to be covered in supplemental allocations. So given the cost of the war and the, her, her doubts about the struggle, why did Fr the French stay the course in 1952 and not seek a peace? The reason is twofold. The first was, as we saw in episode 30, nationalism was on the rise in both Morocco and Tunisia, and the French believed that if they withdrew from Vietnam, it would only intensify the nationalist spirit throughout the rest of the empire. Therefore, for the sake of the empire, France had to hold the line. Second was the fear that China would come to the aid of the Viet Minh and invade Vietnam, as they had done in Korea. The People's Republic of China already had 150,000 troops on the border. The rest of the Allies were fighting in Korea, and if France withdraw, withdrew from Vietnam, she would lose credibility in the face of her democratic allies. American and British intelligence uh, thought Chinese intervention in Vietnam unlikely given the losses they were already suffering in Korea. 
The French, nevertheless, thought it was a real possibility and insisted that the U.S. provide air and naval support in case it happened. U.S. officials said if such an event were to take place, the United States would bomb China and blockade Chinese ports. France and Britain disagree with this course of action, though. France would need uh, whatever resources were available to stem the tide of the Chinese invasion in Vietnam, whereas Britain was afraid that uh, China may respond to such attacks by attacking Hong Kong. When negotiations began to settle the Korean War, the French lobbied for the Americans to include Vietnam in the final settlement and to settle both wars at the same time. The Americans dismissed this request as out of hand. Many French politicians asked, why was it acceptable for the Americans to negotiate with the communists but not the French? The reason was 1952 was a presidential election year in the United States, and Truman and the Democrats knew the Republicans would make political hay out of any negotiated settlement in Vietnam. They already said the Democrats were weak for negotiating in Korea and for losing China. By 1952, Ho and Mao decided the Vietnamese should concentrate on clearing the border area of northern Laos of their small French garrisons. It was decided to attack and take Nagai Lo, a strategic town between Hanoi and northern Laos. Taking this town would cut the French garrisons off from support. Jap concentrated some 30,000 men for the attack and the troops had moved mostly by night, and Viet Minh camouflage had become quite adapt as French aircraft reconnaissance had failed to spot the movement of his forces. On October the 17th, at 5 p.m., two regiments attacked the town with heavy mortar fire. Within an hour, the town fell. Thick clouds had had prevented the French from calling for air support. Very quickly, other small forts in the area fell, and by morning, the French had lost 700 men. Ceylon ordered a general offensive along the entire Red River, northwest of Hanoi, in an attempt to cut Jap's supply lines in an effort to force Jap away from the Laotian border. It was, it was to date the largest attack launched by the French with some 30,000 men and all available planes, tanks, and artillery and vehicles in northern Vietnam. The operation at first went well. The French quickly seized sizable stocks of weapons, food, and ammunition, but the movement was slow. The terrain was thick with jungle, a few roads, and few landmarks. Men became lost and often had to hack their way their own tra- trails through the forests. Forests of bamboo were particularly difficult to traverse. Jap again refused to engage, though, and had his regional units harass the French supply lines. Ceylon was primarily forced to rely on one made road for resupply. On November the 17th, the Viet Minh launched a major ambush bush on one of his mobile groups. The column was trapped all day and suffered 300 casualties. Ceylon's counterattack in the end was a failure, costing the lives of some 1,200 men. Fighting for both sides was difficult, though. For, Fr- for the French, although mules were sometimes available for heavy weapons and radios, troops had to generally carry their own food, equipment, and water in tropical heats, leading to fatigue and heat stroke. Moreover, shortages were a problem as well. An Algerian veteran told of how his unit, operating deep in the jungle, were dropped cans of food that said, quote, for Arab troops, 1928, close quote. When they opened the, canis, the, the cans, uh, a light green liquid came out. Tigers, poisonous snakes, insects, and scorpions also populated the jungle, as well as blood-sucking leeches and ticks, which were also a constant problem, and rats infested most remote jungle bases. Fire ants were another great fear of the soldiers. They would often consume wounded men who remained on the jungle floor for too long. 
The Viet Minh suffered from these horrors as well. Mythically, Hollywood teaches us that the Vietnamese were one with the jungle, and that this was their element, but this just wasn't true. Most Viet Minh troops were not from the jungle villages, but from the two coastal plains or the coastal cities. Like the French, the Vietnamese suffered from diseases like malaria, dysentery, cholera, and typhoid. The French army did, however, have access to prostitutes that were supplied by the army, though through the mobile field brothels of the medical field battalion. It was believed that if the troops had access to prostitutes, they wouldn't bother the local women. Moreover, prostitutes were treated for the diseases guarding against uh, troops getting STDs. From what my sources tell me, uh, these women were volunteers from a tribe of peoples uh, from North Africa called the Ulan Nil. It was a part of their culture tradition to work as prostitutes for a few years and then return home with their savings to find a good husband and settle down. Under emergency situations, they doubled as nurses and often traveled to dangerous areas of the front to entertain the troops and provide emotional support, as we saw in our last segment. As a result, most of the men became quite attached to these women. 73 well-known high-end French escorts also worked in Vietnam, serving French officials and high-ranking officers, but Diatier had them all sent home, to the objections of many French officials. The French mobile brothels were closed for the regular French army in 1995 and the French Foreign Legion in 2003. Having won a victory at Nai Lao, uh, Jap decided in mid-November to attack Na San, a French strong point on the Laotian-Vietnamese border. The French, however, had evacuated the base and fortified a defensive position a few miles south around a dirt runway. Mines were planted and barbed wire was strung up. Extra reinforcements were flown in and the hills atop tops around the airstrip were fortified. One C-47 began to arrive every 15 minutes. Jap's intelligence had told him the French only had five weak battalions in the region, although in reality the French had gathered nine full-strength battalions. On November the 23rd, leading elements of the 308th Viet Minh Division attacked with bazookas, recoilless rifles, grenades, machetes, and bangalores. Fierce fighting ensued, and some outposts changed hands several times, but the defenses held, and the French held off the Viet Minh. Jap rested his forces for another assault. Meanwhile, the French brought in French tr fresh troops and 105mm howitzers. At night on November the 30th, he launched his second assault using herds of water buffaloes. Viet Minh cleared the, mi the minefield and broke through the barbed wire. Again, however, the Viet Minh were beaten back with heavy losses. The next day, he tried again, throwing two fresh regiments against the French. Bearcats and B-26 bombers arrived from Hanoi and lit up the night sky with flares and, and strafing runs. Viet Minh were forced to fall back and retreat by morning. The news of the victory caused jubilation in, fr in the French community in Indochina. The typically frugal French commissary ordered a shipment of Australian steaks, Algerian wine, and 3,000 bottles of champagne. Vietnamese troops were given frozen meat, dried fish, and rice, while the North Africans received wine, sheep, and goats to barbecue. It was a crushing defeat for the Viet Minh. They had lost an estimated 6,000 men. At this point, Ho had secretly began traveling to various villages throughout northern Vietnam to keep up the morale. To avoid detection by the French, they moved him every three to four days. Ho rose early to work and played volleyball or sw swim in the evening, though he was by now 60 years old. 
Throughout the liberated zone, morale problems were on the rise as the war began its seventh year with no end in sight. Most people still supported the revolution, but much of this support was for Ho and what he had done for the Vietnamese people over the years. The peasants provided the food that kept the government going, and its sons made up the bulk of its army, a force which now numbered some 250,000 men. The Viet Minh forced the landlords to lower rents and extracted money from them to give to the peasants. This caused problems amongst the middle class and intellectuals who complained of the constant propaganda, the cost of the war, and food shortages. By 1952, recruits from the cities had dried up, in part due to the French security forces, but also many knew that joining the Viet Minh army was, uh, was virtually a death sentence. The Viet Minh were forced to use more aggressive methods to obtain conscripts for their forces, which was beginning to alienate people. Some peasants even moved to more remote locations to escape service in the Viet Minh. Viet Minh had delivered two major defeats to the French and steadily expanded their control of the country. France was slowly losing the war, but the Viet Minh were not winning quickly enough. Moreover, the final outcome of the war still hung in the balance. The French and the Viet Minh were equally matched. The French as well had achieved two stunning victories and still controlled southern Vietnam and the major urban areas. The VNA, though weak, was learning to fight, and in another two to three years could be a serious force. There was also the growing danger that the United States would intervene in the war before France was defeated. The new American president had hammered the Democrats for losing China, and his new vice president, Nixon, was a strong anti-communist, as was his secretary of state, Dulles, who hated the communists with a passion. Eisenhower didn't have a, a stated foreign policy beyond ending the Korean War, and he really didn't need to. Eisenhower was such a respected figure across political lines that we really don't have a unifying character like him today in the United States. The United States was at war in Korea, and at home the second Red Scare was ripping the, nation, the nation's social fabric apart. Senator McCarthy and his allies were searching for the, the government and Hollywood for communists, and the Cold War was only growing more intense. In the Soviet Union, Stalin began a new round of purges, this time focused on the Jews, who he believed were trying to assassinate him. The Americans that fall also tested their first thermonuclear weapon. Upon coming to office, Eisenhower's top priority was to end the war in Korea, but negotiating an end to both Korea and Vietnam would make Eisenhower look weak on communism. He might have enough political capital to end the war on, with communism in Korea, but ending both would jeopardize his support with the American right. Therefore, he was determined that the French hold the line in Vietnam. Secondly, Eisenhower saw Vietnam as a more geostrategic location than Korea. If France lost Vietnam to communism, he feared, all of Southeast Asia would fall along with Malaya, Indonesia, India, and the Middle East, economically ceding the communist control of the world's economy. He voiced consistent support for increased American aid of the French. In his inaugural address, he drew a link between the American fight in Korea and the French fight in Vietnam as part of a global struggle against communism. In 1953, the United States had delivered some 139,000 metric tons of military equipment to the French, including 15,000 vehicles, 900 combat vehicles, 2,500 artillery pieces, 24,000 machine guns, 75,000 small arms, and 9,000 radios. In addition to 106, 160 fighters, 41 B-26 bombers, 28 C-47s, 155 aircraft engines, and 93,000 bombs. The Americans pledged to give the French whatever supplies were necessary to win the war. 
The British, too, urged the French to stand strong in Vietnam, but the French saw things differently. France just wasn't in a position politically or economically to expand the war in Vietnam, let alone hold its current position. The French wanted to maintain their position until an honorable settlement could be reached as the Allies had done in Korea. In April 1953, the Viet Minh invaded Laos, until then a small sideshow to the war in Vietnam in an attempt to further disperse the already spread-thin French army. By the end of the month, the Royal Laotian capital was partially surrounded, raising alarm bells in both Paris and Washington. If Laos fell to the Viet Minh, they could outflank the French forces in North Vietnam and invade the South. The French government pressed the French general staff and the new general, Navarre, to defend Laos, but without the additional 50,000 men he had requested to do it. Jap, having felt that he had completed his mission of frightening and confusing the French, withdrew back across the border into North Vietnam. Eisenhower felt that only two moves could save Indochina from communism, a declaration guaranteeing the independence of the Associated States of Indochina as soon as the war ended, and a new, strong, aggressive French commander like Diat Day to take the offensive against the Viet Minh. The French, still wanting a negotiated settlement, were caught in a trap of their own making. By choosing to internationalize the war by requesting American aid, they gave the Americans an implicit say in the war, especially when and how it could end. Any unilateral move by the French to end the war could lead to an immediate end of U.S. aid, which would expose the Expeditionary Corps and the colonial community to grave danger, forcing a complete decolonization and a loss of face, if not an outright military disaster. Moreover, it would complicate Franco-American relations in regards to Europe. When French officials asked why it was acceptable for the Americans to negotiate a settlement to the Korean War but not the French to negotiate a settlement with the Viet Minh, the Americans argued that they had been able to do so because they had achieved a strong bargaining position and that France must achieve an offensive victory on the ground in order to negotiate from a position of strength. The French political scene, the anti-war movement, uh, coalesced around Mendes France, and when Men May's government fell on May the 21st, he almost gained enough support to, to form his own government, just 13 votes short in the assembly. He argued that the Indochinese state should be granted full independence and that a date should be set for the full withdrawal of French forces. Then France, in concert with a new independent Indochinese state, would propose an armistice with Ho, Ho Chi Minh and a nationwide election for a Vietnamese assembly to establish a constitution and a free independent Vietnam. The French public had turned against the war, and there was broad support in the assembly for talks with Ho Chi Minh. The peace in Korea had made many French ask why they continued to fight when the Allies had made a peace with the communists. Meanwhile, the French replaced Ceylon and selected a new commander at the behest of the Americans. Not many French generals wanted the job, as many saw it as an impossible task at best, or at worst, to be that general that would over, be overseeing the, the closing phase of France's defeat in Indochina. The French chose for the job Henry Navarre. He had very little experience with Indochina, a veteran of both world wars. He had served in colonial intelligence in Tunisia and Morocco. The French argued he would bring a fresh approach to the war, but the Americans were skeptical. Navarre was said to be cold and effete. He was trim and elegant in appearance, and was a highly intelligent with an analytical mind. Many French officers, however, felt he was a desk jockey, as he had worked as a staff officer most of his career. Navarre had not wanted the assignment and had tried to turn it down, 
but when he, they, he arrived in Indochina, he threw himself into the task. At this point, France had close to a half a million men on the ground. However, about 400,000 of these were Vietnamese and other Indochinese units. To this date, France had lost about 6,000 French officers, three of whom were generals, 12,019 legionnaires and, and Africans, and some 14,000 Indochinese troops. Despite having more troops than the Viet Minh on paper, the vast majority were incapable of launching offensive operations. In reality, Navarre only had about three combat divisions against Jaff's six. The situation in the Red Delta had only grown worse. Most of the villages hadn't paid their taxes in years, but those revenues were not staying with the farmers. They were going into the coffers of the Viet Minh. Politically, the Viet Minh and their guerrillas units dominated about 70% of the Delta, minus a few Catholic strongholds, Hanoi and Haiphong, and other areas with large French bases. About 80% of Vietnam's population lived in Viet Minh-controlled areas. The Viet Minh had about 100,000 guerrillas in the Red River Delta, and it provided 80% of its food and 70% of its recruits. Moreover, as the Viet Minh used to only operate by night, now some areas were controlled by them around the clock. Navarre moved to consolidate the remain, remainder of his legionnaires and North African uh, tro colonial troops into mobile groups while training more Vietnamese while he pressed the French government for more French officers to train the VNA. He also received 200 U.S. Air Force mechanics to help service French aircraft. By 1955, he proposed they would have enough troops for a final offensive against the Viet Minh. This plan flew in the face of what the Americans wanted, so they sent General John Iron Mike O'Daniel, a hard-nosed, cigar-chomping veteran of both Korea and World War II, to advise Navarre and to try to persuade him to go on the offensive. The split that had existed in the U.S. government over if to support the French or the Viet Minh was gone. In the new Cold War atmosphere of the Eisenhower administration, the Americans wanted the French to win. The American public and many in government were beginning to question if the French could even win, though. In August, Life magazine had declared the war in Indochina all but lost. The CIA was pessimistic and predicted the situation would only grow worse for the French after 1954. The Bodai government was considered a failure, and the Pentagon believed that Navarre's plans wouldn't change the situation on the ground. Many Americans in 1953, though, still didn't know where Vietnam was or much about its importance in the Cold War. Congress had approved the administration's request for $400 million for Indochina fiscal year 1954. Despite the complaints of some senators, such as Barry Goldwater and John F. Kennedy, who claimed that the U.S. was funding the French colonial empire there. In September, Eisenhower approved another $385 million to be taken out of other projects to be spent on Vietnam. Many congressmen and government officials silently grumbled about the administration's support of the French, but given the president's prestige and the Cold War zeitgeist, few were willing to stand in the administration's way. By 1954, the United States would be paying for 80% of the war in Vietnam. October, Bai Dao, in an effort to increase pressure on the French, convened a three-day national congress and invited all the significant religious and political factions, minus the Viet Minh. The congress declared that all treaties with France had to be approved by a national assembly, uh, which was to be elected by universal suffrage. Second, it passed a resolution refusing to join the French Union with complete independence. The Vietnamese sought the backing from the Americans for their proposals, but the U.S. flatly rejected them. 
Americans complained to the Vietnamese bitterly that these proposals only strengthened the Viet Minh and weakened the French. They said that the resolutions went too far and had to, and ha- they had to be walked back. Bao Dai, who was on vacation on the French Riviera, was summoned to Paris, and the following day a, mild, a milder resolution was passed stating that the Vietnam would be a part of the French Union but not in its present form. In Paris, French politicians demanded to know what they were fighting for. Even right-wing French politicians moved towards ending France's involvement there. However, there was a disagreement between the right and the left about how to end the war. The left wanted to have direct talks with Ho Chi Minh, whereas the right preferred a council of all the involved parties, including the Americans and Chinese. Meanwhile, French intellectuals and the French public continued to protest against the war. Henry Martin became a leading figure in the peace movement akin to John Kerry later in the U.S., He served in the French Navy and witnessed the violent bombardment of Haiphong we spoke about last segment. He returned to France determined to protest the war. In 1949, he attempted to convince young recruits in Toulon not to participate in the war and was arrested. He was sentenced to five years in prison, but Jean-Paul Sartre spoke on his behalf for his release and an end to the war in Vietnam. The French communists were disrupting the flow of supplies to Indochina and fielded large demonstrations. The Catholic Church had also come out against the war in Indochina on humanitarian grounds, led by French Catholic youth groups and the Catholic French intellectuals, putting considerable pressure on the MRP. Even de Gaulle had turned against the war, saying France had very little to gain from staying in Vietnam. When French hospital trains arrived home with wounded from Vietnam, the wounded were often stoned by French communists. Much of the equipment that arrived in Vietnam was sabotaged by the communists as well. However, some French communities continued to support the troops in Vietnam, most notably Bordeaux, where the community collected money for the French military to buy helicopters to evacuate the wounded. Back in Vietnam, the French high command, with influence from the Americans, decided to take a more offensive approach. Fearing another Viet Minh invasion of Laos, it was decided that the French must take an area named Dien Bien Phu to defend northern Laos. The French sought to recreate the Battle of Na San two years earlier. Troops would be dropped in and an airfield would be constructed and fortified, tempting Jap into battle. Once engaged, French air superiority and firepower would destroy the Viet Minh attackers, resulting in a French strategic victory in defending Laos and buying time to build up the VNA for the coming offensive in 1955. Moreover, a victory here would give France a stronger position in any future negotiations, and it would give the Americans the offensive victory they desired. Moreover, it would provide protection to the Thai and Hmong minorities in the area who were suffering at the hands of the Viet Minh. Navarre himself had a romantic attachment to these people as he viewed their resistance to Viet Minh occupation like the French resistance to the Germans in World War II. Economically, though, the region as well was important for its opium. The French and Viet Minh had been using opium on a small scale to finance the war, and control of Dien Bien Phu would result in control of these opium fields. At 8.15 on November the 20th, 1953, about 60 Dakotas took off from Hanoi, flanked by B-26s in a column seven miles long. Two hours later, at 10.35, 2,200 paratroopers, the best of the French army, dropped into the valley north of Dien Bien Phu. Fighting for the valley was brief, as the Viet Minh garrison of 90 men was overwhelmed. The French had only lost 15 men, with an additional 53 wounded. 
French then began to dig in. The move caught the Viet Minh by surprise. They were quickly informed of Navarre's plan, though through French papers, which they were voracious readers of. Viet Minh spies also collected what information they could about the operation. French officers were known during this period to have loose lips. They quickly learned that the French were trying to repeat their victory at Na San. Sensing the importance of the French uh, place on the operation, Jap directed three divisions to march towards Dien Bien Phu. The French assumed that Jap wouldn't be able to operate so far from his base in northern Vietnam and that the logistical problems would be too hard for the Viet Minh to overcome, especially in transporting its heavy equipment and artillery. Jap was tempted to fight the French at Dien Bien Phu. They were far from their bases of supplies as well, outnumbered, but they, he, but he wouldn't be fighting on ground of his own, his own choosing. He had been defeated only a year before in a similar battle at Nan San. His supply lines to China would stretch some 500 miles over a rudimentary road system and tracks where some places the supplies would need to be carried on people's backs or on modified bicycles, which could carry between 100 and 300 kilograms of weight over weeks or perhaps months, depending on the lengths of the battle. Vast numbers of porters would need to be needed as well to carry rice for the troops, but porters had to eat as well. One porter would have to carry 60 pounds of rice to deliver two pounds of rice, enough to feed one soldier for one day. Despite the logistical challenges, Jap decided he would give battle at Dien Bien Phu. He would spring a trap against the trapper. His Chinese allies agreed to the plan as they saw a chance for the Viet Minh to secure a major victory in advance of negotiations that had been set for 1954 at Geneva. The Soviets and the Chinese, with the end of the Korean War, wanted a negotiated peace in Vietnam and were determined to avoid an American intervention. Both China and the Soviets wanted to focus more of their res natural resources at re on rebuilding their nations and not fighting wars. The Soviets and Chinese favored a partition of the country, as in Korea. For the Chinese, this would also ensure a buffer state between China and the Americans or French forces in South Vietnam. Ho Chi Minh and the Vietnamese were also wanted peace. His people had suffered a heavy burden the last seven years, and they needed a rest. Refusing to negotiate with the French and Americans would also displease China and the Soviets, whose help was vital in the struggle. Moreover, France, despite its inability to win the, bat the battle on the field, still held the major cities and southern part of the country, and the American direct intervention seemed like a growing possibility. At this point, the Viet Minh saw the primary obstacle to their independence not as France, but the United States. Their soldiers were dying from American-made planes, bombs, and napalm, and they knew that without American support, France would probably seek a settlement. The question was less and less, what will Paris say? But what will Washington do? The Allies, unlike the Viet Minh, Soviets, and Chinese, were going into the upcoming negotiations at Geneva divided. The French and the British wanted a negotiated settlement. Americans hated even talking with the Chinese and still sought a military victory in Vietnam. The British and the Americans were also on really bad terms. Anthony Eden, the British Foreign Secretary, and Dulles hated each other. Eden thought Americans' att attempt at ignoring Mao's China was childish and was disturbed by the American talk of bombing China and using nuclear weapons. Back in Vietnam, Jap planned to throw 35,000 men against the French at Dien Bien Phu, with all of his available engineers, artillery, and anti-aircraft guns. He organized 14,500 men and women porters and 20,000 bicycles to transport his supplies for a battle they expected to last 40 days.
Trucks, bicycles, and porters were all covered in elaborate camouflage and tried to travel at night when they could to evade the French Air Force. Jap also ordered a vast network of trenches to be built around the French strong points in addition to sappers or men who tunneled underneath enemy strong points to lay explosives. Viet Minh troops covered 20 miles a day and or up to 30 by night to reach Dien Bien Phu. Each man carried a gun, a week's supply of food which was replenished along the way, a bottle of water, a shovel, a mosquito net, and a little salt. They marched from dawn till dusk or vice versa with a 10-minute rest every hour. Some men had boots uh, or shoes, but many had just sandals cut out of tires. Artillery, when they could, was dis- disassembled and carried up the mountains overlooking Dien Bien Phu. However, the larger 105mm guns had to be painfully dragged up mountains with blocks and ropes, and positions for them had to be dug into the hillsides. Fatigue and lack of food were a constant problem, as meals consisted of only of rice, often uncooked, as the kitchens had to be smokeless. French built nine strong points in the valley, all named after the French commanders de Castier's former girlfriends, Dominique, Huguette, Claudine, Elaine, all circled the airfield, while to the west stood Francois, in the north and on the small hills stood Gabrielle and Marie and Beatrice, while to the far south stood Isabelle, with an additional airfield. The French placed most of their artillery at Isabelle in support of the main camp. Bunkers and defensive positions were constructed with what material could be found. The valley was more or less empty of trees, and venturing into the hillsides to cut trees would result in enemy ambushes. The French had to rob local villages of their buildings for materials. Everything else had to be flown in, including 3,000 tons of barbed wire. In the central camp, an underground headquarters was constructed with a hospital. A water filtration plant was established with generators for electricity. Ammunition dumps were built along with a repair shop and general stores. Two BMC brothel units were also brought in for the troops. At this point, some 10,910 French Union soldiers and legionnaires occupied the valley, with C-47s and C-119s delivering large amounts of ammunition and supplies on a daily basis. American Bearcat fighters were also supplied to the base, along with three U.S.-made M24 Chaffee tanks that had to be assembled. The CIA Civilian Air Force, also known as CAT, uh, with C-119s, also began to fly supplies in for the French from Taiwan. Their contribution to the coming battle was immense, as the C-119 carried six tons of supplies versus the two-and-a-half of the C-47s. In all, some 200 planes would participate in the supply of Dien Bien Phu. Bar and the French assumed that Jap could never move his 105mm howitzers into place, but French intelligence had photos of the Vietnamese moving guns and believed Jap had deployed at least 33,000 troops against Dien Bien Phu. He became concerned that he may not be able to hold the valley if the Viet Minh got those guns into the surrounding hills. The artillery officer, Colonel Charles Pithro, uh, advised, though, that the Vietnamese lacked the skill to use these guns effectively, even if they got them up to the hills, and that the French artillery at Dien Bien Phu could easily counter whatever the Viet Minh threw at them. It didn't help matters that Navarre and his deputy commander, Cognier, in command of French forces in northern Vietnam, hated each other. They were the exact opposites in many ways. Cognier was a brash extrovert, whereas Navarre was an introverted intellectual. Kanye in private called Navarre the air conditioner general 
who lived in hotels in Saigon while the real generals fought the war in the north. He was especially upset that Navarre had proceeded with another major operation in the south that tied up additional air power that could have been used at Dien Bien Phu. Meanwhile, Jap moved his headquarters to the vicinity of Dien Bien Phu to be on hand for the battle. Jap was worried, though, that the base at Dien Bien Phu was larger than at Nan San, and his units had never operated together on such a large scale over such a large battlefield. Nor had he used so much artillery before in a, such a coordinated way. Were his, were his units capable of such discipline and timing? Nor had they planned for a battle to last so long. Most battles were fought from dusk to the early hours. Could his troops fight effectively in the daylight with the French Air Force flying overhead? Jeff's plan for the battle called for three phases. The first would be to take Beatrice, Gabrielle, and Anne-Marie. The second phase would be to take the central bases and the enemy headquarters. The third phase would be to wipe out any survivors that remained. Giant models of the French camps were built, and, and the Viet Minh went through the plan again and again and again. On the late afternoon of March the 13th, the Viet Minh commenced their attack. Artillery and mortar fire rained down on the French position for days. Two regiments came out of their trenches and attacked Beatrice to the northeast. Savage fighting ensued. The Viet Minh artillery fire killed the camp commander and the XO, or executive officer. Their leaders dead, the men at Beatrice fought on bitterly, but by 10.30, the camp fell. Meanwhile, at Gabrielle, the French re repelled two waves of, of attacks, and at Anne-Marie, they fought off three Viet Minh attacks. The Viet Minh guns were buried deep into the hillside and camouflaged well. Many more fake dummy guns had been built into the hill as well to confuse the French. It was difficult for French planes to take them out, and for French counter-battery fire was ineffective. Periodic shelling and mortar fire through February and March had allowed the Viet Minh gunners to fine-tune their targeting for when the battle began. The French artillery colonel, Petro, remembering his assurance to the French command only weeks earlier, committed suicide by using a grenade in his tent. While Dien Bien Phu came under attack, Viet Minh commando squads attacked French military airports semi-simultaneously throughout the country, damaging and destroying planes. In one such incident, the Viet Minh crawled through the sewer system to access the airfield and destroyed the planes. Other commando teams destroyed French fuel stocks by pouring water into them. Taking Beatrice the first night of the battle was a huge morale boost to the Viet Minh and a psychological blow to the French. It gave Jap's men the confidence that they could take a fortified French position. The situation for the French was critical. The heavy artillery fire had rendered the airport inoperable. Supplies would now have to be parachuted in. Briel came under renewed attack. The French attempted a counterattack supported by tanks, but were beaten back, suffering heavy losses, and Gabrielle soon fell. The morgue was filled to capacity, and the French ran out of places to lay the bodies. Anne-Marie fell on the 17th, as much of its Thai garrison had deserted. Yet many French officers still felt victory was a possibility, as the Viet Minh had taken appalling losses. Jap did have issues. He had lost 2,500 men in taking the northern strong points and was running low on ammo and medicine. Many of his men suffered from head injuries as they did not have helmets. Yellow flies swarmed the field hospitals as they laid their eggs in the wounds of the injured men. Supplies were taking longer to reach the front as a result of increased French air attacks and new American cluster bombs, which unleashed shrapnel especially designed to kill and wound people. 
Meanwhile, back in Washington, the head of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, Admiral Arthur Redford, saw Dien Bien Phu as an impending disaster for the French and a victory for the Chinese. He advocated the intervention of the American air power to save the French. France uh, told the Americans that if victory could not be achieved in 1954 or 1955 and that France would need American troops to stay in the war. Radford traveled to the White House for a 90-minute meeting with the president and both Dulles brothers, the secretary of state and the director of the CIA. The Americans told the French any U.S. intervention would have to be agreed to in writing between the U.S. and France, given the consequences of such a move. Plans were drawn up for U.S. aircraft carriers to be deployed to the Gulf of Tonkin, with B-29s out of the Philippines to attack Viet Minh forces around Dien Bien Phu. The administration also moved to prepare the American people for a war and to get congressional support. None of the uh, service chiefs were convinced about the plan, though. They thought the use of, use of a U.S. air power in Vietnam wouldn't save the French. General Ridgway, General of the Army, said fighting in Italy during World War II and Korea had shown air power's limitations in rough terrain. The Viet Minh were, were still operating despite the best efforts of the French Air Force. How could they be sure the American Air Forces would do any better? Things didn't go any better when speaking with the congressional leadership. Congress didn't want to commit the United States to a war in Vietnam without Allied support principally that of Great Britain, Australia, New Zealand, and Canada. They didn't want Americans shouldering the burden of another UN war like in Korea. Even with Allied support, Kennedy argued it would just be wasting American lives and treasure in an unwinnable war. When Dulles met with Eden, the British were not keen to involve themselves in Indochina when already fighting in Malaya. They questioned even if the situation in Indochina could be salvaged. Moreover, they felt aiding France and Indochina would alienate their Commonwealth partners, especially India. The British also didn't buy the American domino theory. It seemed preposterous to them to believe a communist state in northern Vietnam would lead to a wave of communism around the world. Moreover, they didn't believe the British public would support a war in Vietnam. At one point, according to French sources, the Americans offered the French the use of atomic bombs at Dien Bien Phu to halt the advance of the Viet Minh. However, with the French and Vietnam men in such close proximity, the French feared it would kill just as many of their men as it did the Viet Minh. Moreover, they feared doing so might risk war with China. British and American sources claim that this offer never, was never made. However, we do know that a study group at the Pentagon in early April drew up plans for using atomic bombs at Dien Bien Phu, and Admiral Redford had brought up the subject in a National uh, Security Council meetings. Many in the National Security Council felt that the use of atomic bombs would send a message to the Chinese and that the Chinese would withdraw their support of the Viet Minh. The issue was brought before Nixon and Eisenhower, but they both felt atomic weapons at Dien Bien Phu would be ineffective. Without the backing of Britain for intervention in Vietnam, Australia and New Zealand failed to back the American plan. Without British support, Eisenhower knew he couldn't get congressional approval Moreover, although he was immensely popular and respected, how long could the American public support a war to save the French? The American military was in no way prepared for a ground war in Vietnam. Under Eisenhower's military doctrine, little wars were to be avoided. Massive retaliation was the administration's approach to war, and it didn't seem as if atomic bombs could save the French. Meanwhile, back at Dien Bien Phu, bad weather and ground fire were making it hard to resupply Dien Bien Phu with airdrops. 
the ground turned into mud without with the onset of the rains and constant shelling. The rain also weakened the effects of napalm, which had been so critical in past battles. Which fortifications were slowly crumbling into muddy trenches. Men stood in knee-deep in mud, and many defecated where they stood, as they were afraid to, of snipers to, too much to leave the trench. The scene looked much more like the First World War than the Cold War. Food was in short supply, and exhaustion and lack of sleep were a constant problem. Most of the French had now been in combat for 45 days. Studies show men begin to suffer from post-traumatic stress syndrome at this point. The few doctors and one nurse, along with the camp prostitutes, tried their best to care for the wounded, but gangrene was a constant issue, and maggots were everywhere. Nevertheless, the French continued to drop volunteers into the camp. Their numbers were never large enough to make up for the French losses, but by April, between 50 to 100 men a day were being dropped in. Many still believed that they could win the battle despite all the hardships. Nevertheless, the garrison was down to 2,400 men, down from the original 11,000 since the battle had begun. Not all of these men had been killed or wounded, but about 4,000 over the course of the battle had ceased to fight and now lived in the no-man's land between the French and the Viet Minh lines. They survived off of scavenging the dead and when supplies were dropped mistakenly outside of the French lines. At this point, the French had only one airborne battalion in reserve, as the rest of their troops were committed to other operations. Things were not going much better for the Viet Minh. Malaria was endemic and gangrene was a serious issue. They only had one trained doctor and six nurses for thousands of wounded men. Jap was fully committed. 50% of the Viet Minh forces were now involved in the battle, in contrast to the 5% of the French. He worried constantly that American air power might intervene, saving the French and delivering a body blow to the Viet Minh cause. May the 1st, at 5 p.m., Jap attacked again. More than 100 Viet Minh artillery pieces opened up on the French. Bunkers and trenches collapsed under the pressure, and many were buried alive. After two hours, the fire died down, and three Viet Minh divisions assaulted Elaine, Yaget, and Dominique. Within hours, Dominique and Elaine fell. The next night, the French dropped in half of the reserve force with more ammunition and supplies, but much of it now landed in Viet Minh-controlled areas, or areas too dangerous to go and retrieve. Intense fighting followed, with Vietnamese press pressing relentlessly despite heavy casualties. You get held by only some 80 legionnaires and Moroccans fell after being assaulted by some 3,000 Viet Minh. Castiers considered breaking out, but he decided that the plan was too risky. The next few days, he, things started looking up, though, as they were dropped some more supplies, and they pushed back a couple of attacks by the Viet Minh, and the skies cleared up, allowing for air support. De Castres thus decided to try and hang on. Maybe a ceasefire would be reached at Geneva. Or Jap might, at this point, be reaching his breaking point. Jap, however, prepared for his final assault, consisting of four infantry divisions, 100 guns, and Katusha rockets, supplied by the Soviets. The bombardment that followed was the heaviest to date. For two hours, the Viet Minh bombarded the French, and shortly before seven, attacked in waves. All the remaining French strong points were now under attack. The French fought back desperately and even counterattacked and drove the Viet Minh back for a time. Explosions shook Elaine as man mine shafts that with TNT were detonated underneath the French. The French still fought back, and the Viet Minh had to call for a halt to reorganize and attack again. 3 p.m., Elaine had been taken despite hand-to-hand -hand combat. 
The Viet Minh captured Curtiz in his best uniform. Isabella in the south remained unsubdued. The French tried to escape but were captured by the Viet Minh. Seven hours later, Paris received word that Dien Bien Phu had fallen. The French were shocked, and the hunt and the hunt for a scapegoat soon began, with politicians and generals blaming each other. The arguments about why the French lost at Dien Bien Phu are legendary in themselves. But most historians agree they fought too far from their base of support around Hanoi, unable to send a mobile force if something went wrong. Second, they vastly underestimated the logistical and technological capabilities of the enemy. Finally, on a tactical level, the strong points were too far apart to adequately support each other. Despite the defeat, though, France militarily wasn't in that bad of a position. They still held all the major cities, and nominally the Red River Delta. Japs' forces, uh, though victorious, had lost thousands of his best troops, and he would need time to rest and shift his men before he could take advantage of his victory. French POWs were immediately put on the road to prison camps. Some were kept on site for propaganda filming, and the seriously injured the Viet Minh actually allowed the French to medevac away. The prisoners of war marched about 12 miles a day and lived off of a daily ration of rice and occasional bananas. Disease was endemic, and many died. On the whole, the Viet Minh guards acted in a respectful manner, but cared very little as many POWs died along the way from wounds and from the elements. Many would say that the French were, of course, themselves not very nice to the Vietnamese, and this is true. But it should be remembered that most of the troops captured at Dien Bien Phu were not French nationals, but fellow Vietnamese, Africans, Arabs, and Eastern Europeans from the Legion. When the POWs entered the camp, they experienced hard living conditions and had to endure communist propaganda and brainwashing. Viet Minh tried hard to split the French imperial forces along racial lines. Arabs and Africans were told that the French were imperialists and that the Viet Minh were their true allies. Legionnaires were told that they had been being exploited, and many were repatriated to Eastern Europe or the Soviet Union. One man who was sent to East Germany, where he was uh, sentenced to prison, uh, subsequently escaped and rejoined the Legion to serve the remainder of his term. VNA soldiers uh, were harshly treated as traitors, as were the French themselves. The Viet Minh plans to divide the survivor survivors didn't succeed. I don't know how many POWs died, but the number is estimated to be in the thousands. Not all the POWs were returned to the French either. Meanwhile, at Geneva, the British ultimately backed the Soviets and Chinese plan to partition the, partition the country. The Americans were eventually convinced to participate by the British, but still refused to work with the Chinese, going to the extreme lengths of refusing to speak with them or be seated at the same tables as them. In one famous incident, Zhou Enlai, the Chinese uh, foreign secretary, reached out to shake the hand of Dulles, but Dulles refused to shake his hand and turned his back to him. In the end, though, the United States did agree to partition the country. The new French prime minister, Mendes, vowed that he would end the war in 30 days, and given the deteriorating military situation in northern Vietnam, he would have to reach some sort of arrangement before Jap was ready to attack again. The VNA was dissolving as thousands deserted. The French offered a ceasefire with a temporary partition of the country until elections could be held uh, with an independent and neutral Cambodian Laos. Vietnam was compelled to agree given Chinese and Soviet pressure to end the war, despite their desires for a united socialist Indochina. Bao Dai's government was not a player in the conference and rejected the division of the country. 
in the coming years, the United States would assume the defense of South Vietnam. By the end of the Geneva Conference, some 110,000 troops of the French Empire had died in Vietnam. 200,000 uh, Viet Minh are estimated to have died, and 125,000 civilians. In summation, why did the French lose in Vietnam and the Viet Minh triumph? France lost in Vietnam for four main reasons. Poor political leadership, no plan, too much brutality, and a desire for a set-piece battle versus winning the hearts and minds or, or asymmetrical warfare. France had poor political leadership during the conflict. Its generals were on average fair, although maybe they emphasized a set-piece battle probably too much. From Leclerc to Le Reeves, reports uh, the generals did advise the politicians that they could not win the war with the resources they had. In contrast to Churchill with Malaya, who allocated the resources necessary to win the war. In the end, France just didn't have enough combat troops to control the territory they needed and to engage the enemy. It also didn't help the French that they had 14 weak consecutive governments over the course of the war, and the generals typically only held command for a year versus Ho Chi Minh and Jap, who were there for, from beginning to end. Second, France had no clear plan to win the war. The French political leadership provided no plan other than to, quote, pacify Vietnam, which isn't a clear mission statement. The mission changed over the years from one of pacification to stopping the spread of communism to trying to achieve a negotiated peace. And at one point, the French army had two masters, Paris and Washington, who wanted two different things. Or was it a realistic request of the French military in 1946 to try and destroy the Viet Minh? The French leadership failed to grasp that the world had changed drastically since 1940. The Viet Minh were not primitive peoples, but a modern, determined political faction armed with modern weapons. By all measures, France should have taken Ho's offer in 1946. It would have retained a measure of French political and economic influence in the region and kept Vietnam in the democratic orbit. Moreover, he even, France, he even agreed to the French having bases in the region and military presence. Third, France was too brutal in its treatment of the Vietnamese people to expect a majority of them to support their involvement in the country. Shelling Haiphong and Hanoi, burning villages in the Red River Delta, which killed thousands of civilians, only bred more support for the Viet Minh and less support for the French. Finally, France lost because they were obsessed with destroying Jap's army in a set-piece battle versus controlling the vital villages in the Red River Delta. Had the French, like the British in Malaya and Kenya, sought to fortify the villages and win the support of the people in the Delta, they would have cut the food and manpower supplies to the Viet Minh. In many ways, the French, in fighting Jap's army, were fighting the symptoms of the problem and not the real issue. Additionally, the French mechanized style of warfare was not conducive to the terrain of Vietnam. Its mobile groups were not very mobile and often got trapped or the target of enemy ambushes themselves. The Viet Minh, on the other hand, had won because it had great leadership, a clear objective, and military aid from China. Ho and Jap, although they made mistakes, they learned from them, and they had a more realistic grasp of the situation than the French. Unlike Jinping and Malaya, Ho knew a war would be long and difficult against the French. They also had a clear goal of independence, which was easy for their people to rally behind. Finally, Chinese military aid gave the Vietnamese the tools they needed to win the war. Without this aid, the war might have lasted even longer, and the French may have changed their tactics or simply outweighed the Viet Minh.
want to thank you for listening to the History of the Cold War podcast, episode 31, part 2, The French-Indochina War, 1951 to 1954. If you enjoy the show, share it with your friends and family. If you don't have a lot of friends but still want to help, give us a positive review on iTunes or the platform of your choice. And stay tuned for our next episode, August the 15th, when we take a deeper look at the life of Ho Chi Minh. As always, if you want to contribute to the podcast, ask questions, or follow us on social media, check out our website at www.historythecoldwarpodcast.com, one word. Well there, feel free to, to fill out our survey so that you can help us to bring you a better show. At Planet Fitness, you can get down with your judgment-free self. Join for only $1 down, $10 a month, no commitment. Now through January 15th, Planet Fitness has cardio, weights, and locker rooms that sparkle like a glass of New Year's champagne. Only $1 down, $10 a month, no commitment. Now through January 15th, join in-club or online at PlanetFitness.com. Planet Fitness, the judgment-free zone. Offer expires January 15th. Stop by any of our 15 area locations. Annual membership fee applies. Participating locations only. See club for details.